we're going to be looking at a documentary based on a best-selling book called The Bible on Earth and exploring the field of biblical archaeology. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rabbi Reacts in our Archaeology in the Bible series. We have been focused for several weeks on analyzing the documentary The Bible Unearthed. And at the end of the last session, I said that we're going to now look at a, the radical claim. Is there grounds and reason to even think this is a divine text? I'm talking for a rational basis, not just a traditional basis and uh, emotional, spiritual connection, which are all legitimate too. But I'm talking about the text itself. Now, I want to dive in, but with a little introduction. Over the past few episodes, and I hope you've seen them. If you haven't yet, you can see them in the text below. But we've been discussing the dating, amongst other things, of the biblical text. When we say dating of the Bible, I'm referring specifically to the five books of Moses, uh, in Judaism known as from Breshit to Devarim, or from Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's what we've been looking at. The, the claim that's divine authorship, and we've been looking at dating it and, and different archae claims archaeologically. Is it uh, Hezekiah, Hezekiah? Is it uh, Josiah, Yoshiahu? Is it Ezra? Who, where, what area, and so on. And we've been actually noticing problems with all the late dating hypotheses and more and more reasons to believe that it is actually really, really, really ancient, talking 10th century, 11th, 12th, 13th, some very far back in time. And that has a critical implication because the text is primarily narrative and law. In fact, the story of how the Israelite people came to be and how they got their divine law. But then there's also quite a few areas towards the end of the book of Leviticus and all the way through Deuteronomy chapter 4 and then later on chapter 26 and so on, they start projecting into the future. Now, in the beginning, Moses is giving warnings to the people saying, if you do well, there'll be blessing. If you do badly, there'll be curses. And here are all the sorts of curses. But as especially Deuteronomy goes on, the vision is Moses more and more saying, actually, I know this is going to happen. You're going to be exiled from your land. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have terrible things happen. But don't worry, God won't abandon you and so on. Now, these prophecies or projections into the future are very important because there's lots of, anyone can make prophecies or projections into the future. You could predict turmoil in the Middle East in the coming decade, and you'll pretty much hit the nail on the head. But there's also things you can't predict easily. So I'll give you an example. The biblical text predicts that amongst the calamities that will befall Israel are lots of famines and illnesses and epidemics and plagues and so on. That is true, and we can see that it all came true, but it's not very um, big proof of divine authorship or human authorship because any human can write that in. It's a sort of thing that happens to people every so often. Plagues hit, epidemics hit, famines hit in, in a land like Israel in the ancient world. There could be plenty of years where the crop yields were smaller. And so that kind of stuff is easy to predict and, and doesn't really demonstrate very much. You could predict victory in wars and failures in wars. Those things happen to all sorts of nations too. So those kind of things, uh, you're always going to have motivational speech. We're going to win the next war. Oh, what an amazing prophecy. It came true. But that stuff is not, is not really impressive. But when the biblical text starts talking about exile, now exile really is an issue because the vast majority of nations have never been exiled from their homeland. They get conquered and assimilated into the dominant culture. They get persecuted or just absorbed and their culture ends, their language ends, their religion ends and they become absorbed in the dominant one. And that's how most nations come to an end. Very few exiles, nations in history, or relatively few nations in history get exiled. But pretty much every nation that does get exiled ends. The Assyrians did a lot of exiling and the peoples they exiled pretty much finish off as nations. Once they're moved out of the land, end up somewhere else, their land, their language, their culture, it all starts to disappear. The Han Chinese did the same. Incas in, in Southern America did the same. So if you're a human author, 
of the Bible, this constant emphasis on the fact that Israel is going to be going to exile is A, incredibly difficult to predict if you're sitting very far back in time because most nations won't be exiled. B is if they are going to be exiled, if that's kind of warning you're trying to throw out to the people, I know every terrible thing's going to happen, then amongst other things going to be, you're going to be exiled and finished as a nation because that's what happens to exiled people. And you can imagine that as a good warning. You guys are going to get exiled. I mean, it's terrible. If you ever let go of this law, you're going to be exiled and finished as a people and God will choose somebody else. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Torah, when I say the Bible, the five books of Moses, they don't say that. They're constantly this theme of you're going to be in exile. It's going to be a horrible exile. You're going to be scattered across the four corners of the globe. And, well, they wouldn't use globes. All right, it's the four corners of the world. And um, God will bring you back. Now, there are two good explanations for this. One is that we're not dealing with a human author. We're dealing with somebody who can predict the crazy impossibility of weird things in history happening and make sure they happen. Number two is a much easier human explanation is it was all written after the first exile. You see, they've already gone into exile. Okay, they're maybe not scattered four corners, but they've been exiled, there'd been some persecution, and they come back to the land. So the author of the end of Leviticus, the author of large chunks of Deuteronomy is post-exilic, or some post-exilic editor sat there and added all these pieces in. And this constant reference to going into exile. Because the alternative if you're looking at somebody writing 8th century, 10th century BCE, 11th century, 12th century BCE, is you're looking at somebody who somehow got the wildest prediction right. Now, before we get into this, could it be post-exilic, let me just tell you how right they got it. It's not like Israel a bit got exiled. <laughs> like I say, most nations in history didn't get exiled. In fact, only a tiny minority did, but those who did stopped existing. But Jewish people, that's the Israelites and their descendants, have been exiled and exiled and exiled. And when those verses in the Bible tell us they're going to be scattered across the world, that has really come true with Israel. In fact, Israel has been so exiled, we've been exiled twice from the land of Israel itself. And since, let's say, in the time between when we got finally kicked out of the land of Israel 2,000 years ago, till the return of Jewish people to the land in the late 19th, early 20th century, in 1948 establishment of the State of Israel, Jews were exiled, I believe the number is 81 times, not including expulsion from Arab lands in the 1950s after the State of Israel. That's an, an exile roughly every 20 years. I mean, that's a, so, so every 21, 22, 23 years. So there's lots and lots of this exile. In other words, these prophecies are coming incredibly true with Israel. The prophecies of persecution, right? They are going to be hated and, and so faint-hearted, you know, that leaves will rustle. All those kind of verses come incredibly true with the Jewish people. Even when the verse in Torah says you'll be le mashal or le shnina, which means you'll basically become the analogy and, and the vocabulary that's used for, uh, for hatred, it becomes incredibly true, right? That, that the vocabulary, the dictionary of hatred is full of words that started with the persecution of this tiny little group of people, the Jews, whether it's the word pogrom or whether it's the word ghetto or genocide, all these things, the words that were originally used about persecution of the Jew that have been universalized to all of hatred. So these prophecies in this book are just incredibly true. Like the idea that you're going to be small in number. One example of this is Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, let's just take, for example, around verse 27. So it says that Hashem will scatter you amongst all the peoples. You'll be left few in number where the nations where God will lead you, right? And, and there you'll assimilate into, into their gods and so on And before you seek God and come back. So, um, or... or you know, a very, very strong, another strong example is in, um, in Deuteronomy 
chapter 28, where they have a really a lot of stuff. And there we talk about the fact that uh, once, you're, once you're exiled amongst those nations, right, let's take verse uh, 65, for example, right? You won't be tranquil, there'll be no rest for the soul of your foot. Hashem will give you trembling heart and longing of eyes and suffering of your soul. Your life will hang in the balance. You'll be frightened night and day. You, you'll not be sure of your livelihood. In the morning, you'll say, if only it could be the night. In the night, you'll say, if only it could be the morning. This, this is the type of, of scenario you'll have. And there's so many verses describing this type of thing. So let's take a look at all of this and and just see how true it is. And the fact, for example, as a, as a Vinishatim is saying, you'll be tiny in number, whereas you should have been as big as the stars of the heavens. Now, when we go into exile in the Second Temple period, the Jewish people, the Jewish people are not a small number. And exactly what the number is, historians debate, but we're talking millions of people. And we're talking, I don't know, 5% to 10% of the Roman Empire, possibly, or 10% is probably an exaggeration, but it's certainly a not insignificant number, or put it slightly differently, if there's 4 million Jews around that time, that's not very different to what Han China was uh, at a pretty similar point in time. So that Han China has grown into a population of 1.2 billion people or, or you know, and, and ancient Israel has, the Bible says, you'll be small when you go into exile. So instead of becoming 1.2 billion people, we bubbled along the bottom of the statistical graph, you know, hitting a peak of, I think, 18 million people before World War II. 12 million afterwards, today there's 14 million, 15 million Jews in the world, right? It's, it's, a, it's a minuscule fraction of humanity, not even 1%, not even a tenth of 1%. I mean, this, it's just nothing, right, statistically speaking. So these biblical, these prophecies are, are coming true again and again and again in very radical and very, very clear ways. Could it be post-exilic? That would be the way to explain it as human authorship. I know the humans came back from the exile, wrote these texts or added to them, embellished, added these chapters and sections in and to show the people, look, the ancient divine prophecy came true. The ancient divine promise came true. But the problem with that, as we looked in our past few videos, is any text written post-exilic would have to have mentioned Jerusalem. Because you're coming back to try to rebuild Jerusalem, try to rebuild the temple. And if you're editing and playing with these texts, the shocking thing about the five books of Moses is this, as we point out in previous videos, that the word Jerusalem is the most mentioned city in the Bible. By the Bible, I mean the, the, all of the Old Testament. It's the most mentioned word. It's in every single book, even those that are not talking about history or narrative. It's the book of Esther, the book of Song of Songs. It's in all of them, the word Jerusalem. It's the most mentioned city hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But not in the five books of Moses. They don't mention the word Jerusalem once. And the reason is very simple. To any later author, if you're Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Josiah, or post-exilic author, Ezra, Nehemiah, whoever you may be, you have to have Jerusalem in because it's your center of your life. So God is going to make Abraham walk past Jerusalem, not Mount Moriah. Because Mount Moriah, just say in Jerusalem, right? When he meets Malkitzedek, king of Salem, just call it Jerusalem, right? If you've got Shechem and you've got Hebron, you've got all these important towns, you're going to have people moving through Jerusalem because you're going to want it to always make sure that God always knew this is the important city. You want to tell the people at the time, come on, guys, this is our important city. How do you manage to write five books without it? It's not, no later author would have, would have missed the opportunity to write Jerusalem. It's impossible, which is why no later author ever does miss the opportunity to write Jerusalem. All the texts from the 10th century onwards, all of them are full of Jerusalem, but not the five books of Moses, which seems to be a clear indication they're written before the 10th century BC. Any later author, any post-exilic author would not have allowed a text that spends chapter after chapter of how you weave the threads of Mishkan, of this temporary portable tabernacle unless they were living in a time where that was there. But if they were taking earlier texts from then and then 
trying to tell everyone to build a fixed house of God, of course they're going to mention somewhere God saying to Moses, one day I want you to build a fixed home in Jerusalem. It's so easy to throw into the text. You can throw a text about exile and persecution and coming back to the land and all that stuff. You can also throw in and build my home in Jerusalem. But it isn't there. The physical home of God is not in the five books of Moses. It's in many, many, many other biblical books that are written in the time when there is a physical temple. It isn't in the five books of Moses because that's not written in a time when there's a temple. That's the inescapable conclusion. It's not in a time when there has to even be a temple, where Jerusalem even had to be the capital of the Jewish people, and so on. The five books of Moses from beginning to end are talking about 12 tribes. There's no hint that only the Judeans are going to survive. Any later author would have wanted to put that in and explain. It wanted Moses in his last blessings not to talk to all 12 tribes, but to call Judah in and say, you're going to be the guarantor of the nation and you're going to be its great rulers and you're going to be... The, they're Judeans, right? They're having Judean monarchy. Their only tribe of Judah. Not a hint in the Torah that's going to be the case. And as I pointed out to you as well, the work of Benjamin Noonan in loan words, where you could tell the architecture, the, the, the moment in history of the Hebrew language by which words have been assimilated by which cultures. But if it was post-exilic, you would definitely expect Aramaic words and, and Persian words and words that have come from the Babylonian exile or Persia to come back with them. And there aren't any in the Torah. There are in the later biblical works, but this is not a post-exilic work. This is from beginning to end. And then we went through detail after detail of stories that the author seems to know that cohere with much, much earlier times. You can see earlier videos for all that type of evidence. And we looked at arguments that maybe was written later and claimed archaeological evidence for later authorship and explained why they don't seem to be correct. Again and again, everything's pointing to very, very, very ancient, to very early authorship. But if it isn't late authorship, then its author knows about this remarkable history of its people, that they're going to be exiled like no other nation, hated and persecuted like crazy, shrunk in number when they're in exile, and yet, as the author seems to insist, not just in the book of the five books of Moses, but in other biblical books, have an incredible impact on the world. So whether it's Abraham being told, it's that through you will be blessed all the nations of the world, all the way through to whether it's Isaiah taking, saying, you'll be a light unto the nations. And history, you'd think, if you're going to have this nation that's scattered and persecuted and, and hated and, uh, and tiny in number, they can have a big impact or small impact. You'd expect almost no impact. The author of the biblical text thinks there's going to be a pretty big impact. And history says there's going to be, there has been a huge impact. Given birth to religions that have dominated the world. Given birth to a whole new set of ideas and ideologies that have changed the world. Whether it was the insistence on a right to life in a time where Greeks and Romans and, and all civilizations thought Population control can be done partly through killing children, for example, infanticide. And ideas that spread to the world through Christianity or through Islam that know you can't kill children to, to have population control. Ideas that you have to measure a society by how it cares for its weakest, which the five books of Moses and all the biblical books are full of, that eventually transformed the world. That were not the way ancients pre-biblical and, and even post-biblical in, in European societies thought until the ideas spread. An idea after idea, whether it's the education of every child, which is a biblical idea, whether it's that peace is an ideal and great warriorship and heroism and conquest is not an ideal. Now, Alexander the Great being called great is an anti-biblical concept. The Bible is against that. It wants, there'll be no nation lifting up sword against nation, etc. These ideas that transformed the world. So you've got a nation that's persecuted, exiled, scattered, tiny in number, 
but going to be a light and, and giving light to the world. That sort of thing doesn't look like a human author. And that the author insists that whenever you go into exile and persecuted, but I won't abandon you, says God. I'm going to bring you back from your exile, back to the land. Stuff that we're seeing in our own time. That that an ancient human author got that right in the 10th century BCE? Or does that start to look like, oh my goodness, this is being written by an author who knows the craziness of Jewish history, who knows that when the Jews mess up, they're going to be thrown into exile and have all this kind of stuff go on with them. And yet they're going to impact the world and come back to their land. And that all of that is written and predicted from the 10th century BC or any other time you pretty want much want in the ancient world. That looks like a serious case for divine authorship of this text. And perhaps even stronger when both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, very clearly the verses tell us that when you're out of the land, the land's yield and agricultural productivity will drop, which it did throughout history. The land was not able to support large populations of people. And yet when you come back to the land, it will suddenly become fruitful. And suddenly there'll be, you'll be able to be more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. And of course, in Isaiah, you have this vision of trees coming up everywhere. And you take a look, you know, I, I, I often show my children uh, photos, pictures even under the British mandate of the land in the early 20th century, when you can look at what's today the Jerusalem Tel Aviv Highway and see a desert. And today you drive on the same route and it's become this incredible fruitful land, able to support massive population, millions and millions of Jews and, and Palestinians and in this land. Right, exactly as the Bible says, that when you come back to the land, trees will be there all over the place and, and forest yield and agricultural yield. And you start to think, this is a human getting this right thousands of years ago? Or are we looking at an author who knows history, can make history happen? The author of the Bible seems to claim for itself, which is the divine author. And this book that has impacted the world more than any other, this book that is believed in to be divine more than any other, might in fact be a divine book. That's clearly a, a radical idea in that it's unpopular in today's world. But unpopular ideas can nevertheless be true ideas. At the very least, I hope this series and this video has given something to think about. Um, and for those who are adherents to faith or thinking deeply about the Torah as a source of, of wisdom for them, something to really give pause to think maybe there really is something so special and divine in the way we live when we try to live up to its values. If you got this far, then hopefully you've not only seen this series, but also there's lots of other videos on lots of other topics of Jewish interest as well. For those who want to go a little bit deeper into them or explore further, check out our Maven courses. Not just courses from myself, but also lots of other educators from around the world in all sorts of topics of Jewish interest. Looking forward to seeing you in any one of these videos or in those courses or wherever you choose to engage. Hi everyone, thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed what you saw, please click on the like and subscribe and hit the notification button below. Thanks so much.